From the grassroots media team at Weave News, this is Interweaving. Welcome to episode 15 of Interweaving. I'm John Collins. Today is Tuesday, April 14th, 2020, and the number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 worldwide is approaching 2 million. That's according to the Coronavirus Resource Center at Johns Hopkins University. And those numbers, of course, would be much higher if testing were more widely available. It's now just over four weeks since Weave News issued a call for audio testimonies about the impact of the pandemic on communities around the world. Today, we bring you four new voices from Boston, Massachusetts, Strasbourg, France, Babane, Swaziland, and Ann Arbor, Michigan. Today, they help us continue to fill in the complex picture of how the effects of COVID-19 are tied up with a range of broader social issues, such as policing, discrimination, tensions between individual freedom and public safety, lack of faith in elected leadership, and the urgent need for transnational cooperation. My name is Raina K. Puels. Today is Tuesday, April 7th, 2020, and I'm reporting from Boston, Massachusetts. I've seen a lot of media about relationship woes in the wake of COVID-19, but I haven't seen much about navigating polyamory while social distancing. Polyamory is the practice of, or desire for, intimate relationships with more than one partner with the informed consent of all involved. Another way to frame poly is as ethical and responsible non-monogamy. I currently have three partners, each of whom has an average of two other partners, with those partners often having partners themselves. In the age of COVID-19, this is a hot spot waiting to happen. Poly people have had to ask themselves tough questions. Who will I keep seeing? Who can't I see? Who won't I see? What risk do I pose to any immunocompromised connections? How can we maximize individual autonomy while still staying safe? My girlfriend decided to bunker down with two of her other partners who are also dating each other. This makes total sense to me practically and rationally. There's more overlap between them, but it's still hard to be apart from her. We're staying connected through weekly socially distant walks and exchanging sexy mask selfies. My boyfriend works in food manufacturing, which is considered essential, so he's still going in. He lives with his fiance, so they're isolating together when he's not at work. Each Sunday, he calls me from a hiking trail outside of Boston, his personal respite. We wish we could touch, but know we will still love each other when this is all over. My newest connection is B, someone I started dating shortly before the new normal. We both live in low-risk households and are still seeing each other twice a week. We know this is risky, but we're extremely cautious and safe. We're also not seeing anyone other than each other and our roommates. One of B's partners is long distance, and his local partner is self-isolating in a high-risk household. As we all cope with our individual situations, emotional support is at a premium right now. While B's partners are sad they can't see him or touch him, they understand the boost B receives from hanging out with me makes it possible for him to be a better partner to them. 
Similarly, seeing B makes the difference from my other partners more bearable. While it's a strange time to fall in love, I'm so thankful for B and our relationship. For everyone out there who's having a corona love story, you're not alone. For those poly folks having a hard time right now, you're also not alone. We're living in a time of hard decisions. Lean into love from near or afar, but please do so safely. Hello everyone, my name is Abdullahi. Today is the 6th of April 2020. I'm reporting from Babane, Swaziland. I was currently volunteering at one of the international recognized schools in Southern Africa in Swaziland and called Waterford Kamplava United World College. Waterford Kamplava has a strong diversity in terms of student body. They came from different parts of the world. In Waterford Kamplava, we have a school break usually start around mid-April and ends at the end of May. However, this year due to the outbreak of COVID-19, the school decided to close and from 17th of March until the 20th of April. The second term will reconvene as face-to-face -face or online teaching depending on the circumstance of COVID-19. Days later, Twazan government announced that 20 days of lockdown started from 27th of March until the 16th of April. Therefore, as a whole country, we are in lockdown situation except civil servants expected at work as well as like the groceries and pharmacies the necessary stuffs. After we closed the school every student went back to their home country as the 50% of our students are international students as well as some staff members. Waterford Camp Lava has a strong foothold and in the local communities we have around 700 students and we have over 100 staff members including maintenance, staff, food, catering etc. The reason that we closed and everything earlier is for the safety of our surrounding communities and in general the Swazi people and then that's why we decided to lock down the school entirely because that's what's best for all of us. Miswazan is one of the Africa's developing countries with a population of 1.1 million people and 60% of the population lives under the poverty line. That's why the lockdown situation has significant impact on this 60% of the population that lives under the poverty line. They are not able to go to work. They are not able to work at home. This affects their daily lives as they cannot support themselves. This may create a recession into our economy because there's no trade as the border is closed. For example, there's no export, there's no import. Also, some international festivals have been cancelled due to the outbreak because of the government put the health of 1.1 million people first. Even though the revenue from those festivals will decrease significantly and then it will impact the budget and the government's review in general. But that's not the case now. The case now it's first the health security of the population is first. A couple of weeks ago my life was quite perfect, everything was going good, but after within weeks everything flipped over and changed my daily life. Now I'm staying on campus on one of the staff residential houses. I usually love seeing and hanging out with my friends every time now. This is not the case and as most of my friends went to their home country for our campus still provided some essential needs such as foods, housing, etc for the some staffs that decided some staffs and students that decided to stay on campus. Personally I didn't lose any hope and faith and I believe that in a short period of time if the world we support and stay side by side, we can't overcome. Also, what gives me some hope is when me and my fellow colleagues on campus do some outdoor activities, they 
couple of days we went to hiking and on the school's nature reserves and took time to reflect and relax. Some staff members on campus make face masks for low-income communities that can afford a face mask and essential stuffs. We organize outdoor yoga on the school's field. We make sure everything in our community stays safe and well. I see the world in a different lens because of I did a bit of statistics and in terms how the COVID-19 cases affected in Africa and the positive side of this story is that the total case of worldwide is 1 million and the total case in Africa is 5,940 which about gives you um, 0.71% 0 .1, of cases in Africa and the death cases in Africa I mean in worldwide is 66,502 and in Africa is around 234 death cases so in Africa there's only 0.35 death cases in overall for the three countries affected corona out of 54 countries in Africa there's only 16 nations in out of 43 recorded death so this shows that in African nation they showed strong belief that they put the health first before everything else even though their economies is in collapse period and it's hard to recover in a long-term future but what the positive uh, side of this is they prioritize the safety and health of their people to overcome this barrier that's what we're looking for in nations around the world every country they need to support they need to stand side by side they need to fight against the outbreak I'm really thankful and grateful for all the social, for all health workers, for the putting their time and effort to make sure everything, everyone stays safe and healthy. Thank you so much. And I'm saying to everyone, please stay safe, stay strong and support each other. Cheers. Goodbye. You're listening to Interweaving, a podcast of conversation and context from Weave News. Contributions from readers and listeners play a central role in helping us continue and expand our grassroots media-making efforts. If you'd like to support our work, just visit weavenews.org donate. Now, back to the show. Hello, my name is Ariane. Today is Wednesday, the 8th of April, 2020, and I'm reporting from Strasbourg, France. We have been in quarantine since March 17th and until April 15th, but yesterday our Prime Minister, Edouard Philippe, announced that it will probably be longer. Currently, to go out, we need to fill out a form, and I've been hearing from cases where homeless people were fined by police for not having this form, and this breaks my heart and just shows that even faced with such a world crisis, the system just can't show any humanity. Of course, as a university student and as many more students around the world, I'm facing many uncertainties. We don't know what will happen with our exams, which should be taking place in this moment. We don't know what will happen with our internships, but these just seem like small problems given the current situation. Strasbourg is a city which borders with Germany. And so we quickly saw the impact of Germany tightening the checks at the borders and then subsequently completely closing the borders, just leaving them open for German citizens and for people who work in Germany. But we also saw European cooperation. Our region is one of the worst hit regions in France and Germany has been taking in patients in need and caring for them where the French health system can't do that. 
As a law student, I'm obviously particularly interested in the evolution of the situation in the EU and how this might impact the future of the EU, whether we will go towards a further integration or whether nationalist movements will take over and the EU, as we know it today, will not exist anymore. But also human rights, of course, and freedoms in general, which in France are very dear to the population and which are now being restricted. For example, the French government and the French parliament just passed a pensions reform before the crisis, which caused a major outcry in the population. And now, obviously, no protests are allowed. The French government has also been using um, the situation as an excuse to loosen labor laws. And of course, no one can protest against this in this moment. I hope that our government realizes that they need to have the people's interest at their heart right now and not the interest of big corporations and that we will go out of this crisis having learned something from humanity and showing more interest in other people and learning how we can help people and have a positive impact on our communities in all levels. My name is Sean Watkins. Today is Saturday, April 11th, 2020, and I am reporting from Ann Arbor, Michigan. My family and I have been sheltering in place for over a month now. My wife and I are both working our full-time jobs remotely and trying to do our best to care for and educate our autistic four-year-old daughter and two-year-old son. We moved to Michigan in January, both for my wife's new job and to be closer to her parents and sister who live three blocks from our new house. Our family was well prepared to shelter in place because my brother-in-law and his family normally live in Qingdao, China, and got stuck here while visiting for Chinese New Year. For weeks, we read the news reports about horrifying experiences people were having in Wuhan. In preparation, well before our government was even addressing the virus, we had started to slowly build up supplies and take precautions. Because of this, we had been able to avoid major grocery shopping. For the first time in many weeks, we took our cars out just to make sure that they were in good working order. Driving through downtown Ann Arbor, a large university town, the streets were eerily silent, as I slowly crawled block by block, I couldn't help but worry about the future of the many small local businesses. Ann Arbor is a wealthy town, so hopefully we will make it through this. But more rural places like where I grew up in northern New York will probably not be as lucky. As we drove, we would occasionally see somewhat large groups of college-age students laughing and drinking on their lawns, obviously breaking social distancing etiquette. The University of Michigan has a large hospital, and we have many friends that are in the healthcare profession. At one point, Michigan was in the top 10 states with the highest numbers of COVID cases and the least amount of testing. Our medical friends are struggling to find enough protective gear to use. The regulations keep changing as to how long they can use the same N95 masks, first for four hours, then a day, and now longer. The Detroit area is in crisis and a disproportionate amount of African Americans are testing positive. Our friends say that they are seeing many 20 and 30 year olds that are being put on ventilators, something that I haven't seen reported in media. To be honest, I am privileged in that my life has not changed that much. The most difficult thing has been getting groceries delivered. I'm actually much busier now that my kids are home all of the time. It feels strange living in a bubble while the world burns around us. I do find hope in how our neighbors have come together to support one another. 
There are chalk messages of encouragement on the driveways, handwritten notes on doors to thank delivery workers, and teddy bears in many windows as scavenger hunts for kids. I know that we will get through this, but I'm disheartened by how many tens of thousands will needlessly die because of the inaction of our government. The majority of what is happening could have been easily prevented. I hope that our officials are held accountable. Before we finish the show today, I also wanted to call your attention to two pieces that are now available on our website at weavenews.org. Writing from Poland, Łukasz Niparko discusses how the pandemic is presenting us with a stark choice between two futures, rising authoritarianism and fascism, or a more utopian path of human liberation. And Sara Mongar offers some personal reflections on how quarantine is affecting students, and how this collective experience can help push us to ask new questions about the purpose of education. We hope you'll check out both of those pieces and share them in your networks. On behalf of the team here at Interweaving, a big thank you to Reina, Ariane, Abdullahi, and Sean for contributing their voices to today's episode. Stay tuned for more COVID-19 diaries in future episodes of the podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about how you can help us weave the world together during this global pandemic, please check out our new dedicated project page at weavenews.org slash COVID-19 diaries. That's weavenews.org slash COVID-19 diaries. Until next time, thanks and take care. Interweaving is a production of Weave News, weaving the world together one underreported story at a time. Our engineer is Terry Dubray, and our theme music is provided by Bee Children. For more exciting grassroots media content, find us online at weavenews.org or on social media at Weave News. There you can find out how you can support us or join us in our work. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for another episode of Interweaving. Interweaving.